Welcome to the Immortal Souls Podcast, where we explore the history, stories, myths, legends, and hype that make shoes what they are today. We are Jared and Nick, two brothers with a passion for shoes. We are excited to have you along for the journey. Starting this season, Air will be sold by the box. A shoe so revolutionary, the game of basketball may never be the same. Those words, written in simple font, along with a shoebox and a ball, that's all that was in the picture, but that's all that was needed. It was the first marketing campaign for what is now easily one of the most popular, iconic, and profitable athletic shoes. Crazy thing is, the shoes aren't even visible in the advertisement. And that's how you know it's great advertising, when you don't even have to show the shoe. Air in a box. That was Nike's simple ad campaign slogan when they launched the Air Force One in 1982. Also known as Uptowns, Forces, Harlems, White Ups, Straps, Ones, Flaves, Airs, Go get us, call them what you want. But the Air Force One was the first basketball shoe that featured a pocket filled with air in the heel for cushioning and support. That the shoe was truly a basketball shoe from the beginning is a fact that is often lost on many people. Just to add some context, Nike, which started as Blue Ribbon Sports in 1964 by Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, was focused on running shoes from the outset. Nike Air Force One was the first basketball shoe with air, which was the first things that really made this shoe unique. Although the Nike Tailwind, which was the first shoe with air in the sole, debuted three years earlier in 1979, getting air into a basketball shoe was not an easy transfer. Nike was fairly new to basketball. Running was what Nike was founded on, and where they had the most experience. And of course, those two sports are completely different from each other and demand different things from their athletic shoes. After all, running is a heel-toe, straight-line activity, while in basketball, there are more cuts, heavy landings, jumping, and instant re-jumping. The Air Force Ones were designed by Bruce Kilgore, who also designed the Air Jordan 2, among other fundamental Nike models. They are the first of the Nike Air Force series, which went on to include the Air Force 2, the Air Force 3, the Air Force STS, the Air Force 5, the Air Force 25, and the Air Force 09. Okay, back to 1982, when the Air Force Ones were originally released. When Bruce Kilgore created the Air Force One, he drew inspiration from the Nike Approach, which was a hiking boot model which had a great balance of support and flexibility. And for the outsole, Kilgore wanted something completely different. Up to that point, most basketball shoes stuck to a traditional herringbone traction pattern. 
Kilgore came up with a circular outsole pattern given basketball players' use of the pivot move in the post. The shoe also included a removable ankle strap, which at the time was called a proprioceptic belt. Surprisingly, the original Air Force One was not offered in the iconic white-on-white colorway, nor was it available in the low-cut profile which has made the shoe universally recognizable. But rather, it came originally in a white and neutral gray colorway, which consisted of primarily white shoes with a gray swoosh and gray outsole. The shoe was then given to basketball-playing wear testers, and among the very first wear testers was a young man by the name of Tinker Hatfield, who had joined Nike in 1981 as a corporate architect. He was amazed by the performance of the sneaker, and Hatfield began to rethink his career choices. Hatfield started to think that his skills would be better suited to designing Nike's athletic footwear as opposed to their buildings. A couple of years later, Hatfield went on to design the Air Jordan 3, and he became a sneaker legend in his own right. Hatfield went on to design many more iconic Nike shoes like the Air Max 1, Nike Moab from Nike's ACG series, Air Max 90, Nike Air Mags, and all the models of Air Jordans that, to me, are actually worth remembering. And Jared, as something of an expert on Air Jordan models that you are, in your opinion, are there any Jordan models not designed by Tinker Hatfield that you can honestly say are iconic or that you would have to have in your closet? In my opinion, I think a lot of it comes down to what somebody's definition of iconic is. And I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, that's a very subjective thing. Now, if we kind of take the baseline of iconic, meaning, um, you know, shoes that by most people's standards are classics, um, there's really only one model of Air Jordan that I can think of not designed by Tinker that I think everybody pretty unanimously would say is iconic, and that would be the Air Jordan 1, which was designed by Peter Moore, who was Nike's, I believe he was Nike's chief um, designer at the time. So again, in my opinion, really the Air Jordan 1 would probably be it. Some people might argue that the Air Jordan 2, which was also designed by Moore as well as um, Kilgore, might be included in that. But uh I think uh, at the very least, I think the Air Jordan 1 is what I would have to go with. All right. And I think I could agree with you about the 1. But yeah, as we all know, the the Air Jordan 2 is kind of a somewhat maligned model. But I I can respect that. Um, In any case, it's not a stretch to say, though, that without the inspiration of the Air Force 1 shoes, Tinker Hatfield might have never had the desire or the opportunity to leave his imprint on athletic shoe design the way that he has. Back to the Air Force Ones. Even though it is reported that some wear testers did not like the ankle strap, they liked the shoe, so much that some even refused to return the samples that they were given. Imagine playing in such an innovative basketball shoe after knowing nothing on the court beyond Puma, Clydes, Adidas Superstars, Chucks, and a plethora of other shoes that could in no way today pass as an actual on-court basketball shoe. When the shoes went into production in 1982, Nike leveraged professional athletes as part of the marketing plan around the new shoe model. Nike signed six NBA players to wear the Air Force One on the hardwood. This group, which became known as the Original Six, 
were Moses Malone, who was on the Philadelphia 76ers, Michael Cooper on the LA Lakers, Bobby Jones, also from the Sixers, Calvin Natt, who was on the Portland Trailblazers, and Michael Thompson of the Portland Trailblazers, as well as Jamal Wilkes, who was on the LA Lakers. These players were put in white Nike tracksuits on a tarmac with a plane behind them and Air Force Ones on their feet. It's a concept that would be dusted off in 2007, the franchise's 25th anniversary, but featuring LeBron James, Steve Nash, Paul Pierce, Rashid Wallace, Chris Paul, Kobe Bryant, and others. As for the name Air Force One, um, all the reliable sources that I looked at while researching this shoe indicate that it was, in fact, named simply as a tribute to the airplane which flies the U.S. president. Um, And the reason why I even bring that up is because in many places you can find um, people that say it was named Air Force One because it was the first shoe in a series of Air Force shoes. Um, But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And proof of that is because I don't think Nike even knew that it was going to continue the Air Force series. Um, And they showed that with the fact that the Air Force Ones were actually discontinued in 1984, just two years after they were released. However, demand for the shoes remained really high. People were asking distributors about the Air Force One, often customizing used shoes to come up with new colorways. And after a while, distributors started asking Nike about the possibility of reissuing the shoe. And this was a proposal that was unheard of back then. For Nike to bring back a shoe that was out of production made absolutely no sense. That was not how the business worked. Why would customers buy a pair of sneakers that was essentially old? Why should Nike spend money on something that was already there before? You know, being in the business of making athletic shoes, Nike was only accustomed to really looking forward, not looking backwards. The usual MO was Nike would make something, make a lot of money, and then they would move on and make something better. And nostalgia was rarely, if ever, a factor in their design and manufacturing decisions. But the Air Force One was different. The demand was so high that Nike actually had to rethink the whole idea of discontinuing shoes and to re-release shoes that had been discontinued. And these were the very first steps towards retroing, which is yet another fixture of sneaker culture that traces its roots back to the Nike Air Force Ones. To understand the role of Air Force Ones played in the now common practice of retroing shoes, Let's go back to just after the 1982 release of the Air Force Ones. In 1983, Nike introduced Air Force One Low, which was meant to offer a wider appeal than the performance-driven Air Force One High. With the Air Force One Low came the precursor to the modern PE, which stands for Player Exclusive, with the original six receiving custom Air Force One Lows to wear on the court reflecting their team's colors, but also their personal taste. A trio of sneaker stores in Baltimore caught on to the trend and flew out to Nike's Portland headquarters in 1983 to pitch a radical idea. Charlie Rudo, Cinderella Shoes, and later Downtown Locker Room wanted Nike to produce Air Force Ones exclusively for their shops. Harold Rudo, who was the buyer at the time for Charlie Rudo, explained in an interview with Scoop Jackson that the trio of shops started what they called the, quote, color of the month club. 
Everywhere Ruta went, kids would stop him, asking what colors were coming next. Baltimore became the heart of sneaker culture on the East Coast. I-95 connected New York and Philadelphia to Baltimore, and the color of the month made Baltimore a monthly destination for sneakerheads. The Three Amigos, as the Baltimore stores would become affectionately known as, helped birth the concept of the collaborative sneaker, also of the limited edition drop. Without the Air Force One and the Color of the Month Club, sneaker culture wouldn't be what it is today. Eventually, in 1986, the Air Force One finally came back. One of the most iconic sneakers of all time returned simply because the fans demanded it. Additionally, having the latest Air Force One became a badge of honor for the likes of hustlers and drug dealers on the East Coast. Endorsed by drug dealers and hustlers and with more available white and black colorways on the market, the Air Force One became the de facto shoe of choice in Harlem. And thus, Nike's Uptowns and Harlems were born. In the late 90s, though, the Air Force One began to explode outside of the traditional hotbeds like Harlem, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. This expansion was due in large part to the crossover between hip-hop and mainstream culture. In the late 90s and the early 2000s, you can hear the Air Force Ones getting name-dropped by the likes of Jay-Z, Cameron, Jules Santana, and many others. Around this same time, in 2002, Nelly dropped the song Air Force Ones with the St. Lunatics. It was an ode to Air Forces of all cuts and colors, albeit many questionable colorways, solidifying the shoe's status in the culture. Nelly's Air Force Ones testified to the fact that the shoe was traveling beyond the East Coast. Nelly and the St. Lunatics took turns bragging about buying their forces in multiples of two. Um, it was a sentiment echoed by Jay-Z's partner, Dame Dash, who promoted the wear em once mentality. And by the mid-aughts, having a pair of Air Force Ones wasn't any longer a real status symbol anymore. But what was a status symbol was having fresh out-of-the-box forces on hand at all times and in all places. Nike came around in the mid-2000s to the idea of having rappers as the shoe's de facto ambassadors, offering up limited edition collaborations to rappers and record labels. Through New York's training camp chain of sneaker stores, Nike released Rockefeller-branded Air Force Ones in 2004, which were crispy white but with a black-embroidered Rockefeller logo on the heel. There was also a Nellyville collaboration, Jay-Z's Black Album from 2003, got an Air Force One collaboration in 2004, and also people like Fat Joe and the Terror Squad, Young Jeezy, all of these hip-hop icons were able to collaborate with Nike and had custom editions of Air Force Ones released in their name uh, with their branding. And Nike, at this point, had cashed in big time by banking heavily on hip-hop's influence and allure to keep a, by then, 20-year-old sneaker relevant in the public eye. By this time, with more availability and a lower price point than it had over two decades prior, the Air Force One was a phenomenon. The sneaker was as easy to replace as it was to crease. 
The simplicity and perceived perfection of the Air Force One in its neutral state was such that even the tiniest alteration, such as highlights on the hill, a different logo, or an icy sole, was striking enough to earn a nickname of its own and a level of bragging rights for anyone that snagged a pair. As there was no shortage of those looking to cover their shoes in flashy embellishments, the model would become the victim of many a botched custom in the early 2000s. Today, there are nearly 2,000 versions of the Air Force One, and it is still going strong. You can't kill off the real deal even when you make mistakes like using ostrich, crocodile, or anaconda skin and slap a $2,000 price tag on the shoes. Nike also has oversaturated the market at times with releases and models that are just too many to count. However, as Nike itself proved when it tried to shut down the Air Force Ones in 1984, the classic shoe isn't going anywhere anytime soon. As the original shoe's 35th anniversary has come and gone, the Air Force One is still a foundational piece of footwear past and future. Aside from the lasting stylistic and functional innovations the Air Force One offers, it also helped to pioneer concepts such as retroing popular shoe models and collaborations and limited drops and also needing multiple pairs of the same shoe. Don't forget that the important part the shoe played in pushing Tinker Hatfield to try his hand at shoe design, which is a decision that has obviously worked out very well for him and for all of us. As far as the Air Force One goes, no advertisements were needed then, and they aren't needed now. Five, four, three, two, one. So, Jared, I have to ask, what is your honest opinion of the Air Force Ones? Do they deserve the hype. You know, I'll be completely honest with you. I certainly think that they are iconic and I think that it's undisputed that they play a very important role in sneaker history. But you know what? For me, I just don't know. They just don't excite me, um, you know, maybe design-wise like the Air Jordans do. You know, ever since I was a little kid, ever since I can remember even caring about sneakers, you know, it was always the Air Jordan that did it for me. And while I think that the Jordan 1s, you know, were probably pretty heavily influenced design-wise off of the Air Force 1s, I mean, if you look at them, they look very similar. While I recognize and respect, you know, the, the part that the Air Force 1 plays in sneaker history, I'm not sure I would have them in my collection. You know what? I think... I definitely can say that I appreciate Air Force Ones for um, all that they did innovation-wise for the place they have in the culture, the shoe culture, especially in the past. And I appreciate them for what they are now. Uh, but to be honest, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because the sole's too thick or whatever it is. I just don't know if I feel like they are a necessity to have in my closet. But I know that they are hugely loved by millions and millions of people. Um, and you know what? We would love for all of you listeners, let us know how you feel about the Air Force Ones on Instagram, Facebook, um, at ImmortalSoulsPodcast.com. Do they deserve the hype? We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks so much. 
Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Immortal Souls podcast. For more information, show notes, pictures, or just to say hi, check us out at immortalsoulspodcast.com, Instagram, or Twitter. Original theme music by Scott Spriggs. Five-star reviews are always helpful and hugely appreciated. Until next time, keep walking the roads less traveled.